I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. And thanks especially to those of you who have recommended the show to somebody you think might like it. It has become apparent to me recently that Slee Ricketts is is a guilty pleasure, which I, I consider to be a high compliment. I mean, I, I am very proud to be a guilty pleasure. The problem with a guilty pleasure, though, is that people don't like to talk about it in public. So here's my deal. It's okay if you don't talk about listening to the show in public. Just find one person to confide in and let them know. And, you know, who, who knows? Maybe maybe he'll even already be a listener. But uh, in any case, do do pass the word along however discreetly, and I will be grateful. And if you like the show and you'd like to hear a little bit more, go to sleevericketts.substack.com and sign up for a free subscription. Just put in your email address and I will give you a week's access to The Secret Show. There are 11 episodes up right now. I just posted the first half of the AMA. It's really good. Uh, And the second half is coming soon. Oh, and if you are a subscriber, do write me at sleerickets at gmail.com and send me your mailing address because I have stickers for you. I'm going to keep this short because it has just been a fucking insane few weeks and it's not going to let up for another week or so, but... Uh, I do I do have some good shows for you. I'm just trying to trying to keep my sanity. Oh, a listener told me about this crazy book I had never heard of. Let me get the title because I want to get it uh, verbatim. Oh yeah, here the 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 book is called The Conservative Poets, a contemporary anthology. It was published in 2006 by. Evansville Press, and it's edited by William Baer, who's a poet and and critic. The Conservative Poets. Is it just me, or is that just a bonkers fucking name for a book? Is that not a crazy idea for a poetry anthology? I mean, that sounds terrible. Not not because conservative writers can't be good poets. I mean, not because conservatives can't be good poets. I mean, there are, I mean, there are names I already recognize just in the table of contents I was able to find uh, of good poets. But to make an anthology collected according to the poet's political affiliations, that seems like a formula for a terrible collection. I mean, it also just seems like could that possibly have helped the careers of those conservative poets? I mean, I, I'm I'm baffled by this. I mean, and to be fair, like I would definitely make as much fun of a collection of activist poetry. I mean, activist or activist, you know, the activist poets. I mean, that, the radical poets. It just sounds terrible. If you know anything about the conservative poets, the anthology uh, edited by William Bear, published by the Evansville Press, do let me know. I mean, and if you, I could not for the life of me find a copy available online, but I am so curious about this. I would definitely love to read William Bear's introduction. If you know anything about this, please do let me know. Uh, and if it seems obviously like a great idea to you, then uh, let me know that as well. Anyway, I am, my, my, uh, my interest has been peaked. Uh, is that something people say? Uh, All right, so this week I have sort of an odd episode for you. I So Cameron was jealous of the episode that Allison, Jesus fucking Christ, I'm tired. Cameron was, Cameron was, so Cameron was jealous of the episode that Alice came up with, which was uh, when we did a few weeks ago, she invited me to send her a few poems and then she picked some and we talked about them. Cameron wanted to do the same thing. He sent me way too many poems, way too many poems. Uh, We talked about some of them. Uh, We talked about, I think, five or six all told, but it took us. So the first poem, I did not understand a lick of it. And instead of breezing past it or dismissing it or uh, skipping it, we talked about this one fucking poem for an hour 
and it was kind of a great conversation. So I'm going to release the rest of our conversation later on, but for today, here is a whole hour of Cameron and me talking about one fucking poem. I still am left a little bit bewildered by this poem, but I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope that you will too. So yeah, so I wanted to talk about, I pulled five of these poems um, from the packet that you sent and they're with it, with one exception, they're all pretty short. I, so they're A Spell to Banish Grief by Saeed Jones, Pisgah by Jeffrey Hill, Worldful by Shane McRae, um, Blackdown Song by Toby Martinez de los Rivas, and uh, Preambles Number 1 by Alvin Feynman. Um, he and Saeed Jones, I had not heard of. I know Saeed, the Saeed Jones poem, was that in poetry recently? No, it was in The New Yorker, very recently. Oh, that's okay. So I, yeah, that's, I was going to say the same, <laughs> occupy similar places in my, my, uh-huh, my yeah. Uh, memory. Yeah, so I knew I had seen it somewhere. And then Alvin Feynman, I don't think I've heard of at all. Alvin Feynman is very obscure. Um, okay. He published a book of poems called Preambles and Other Poems uh, in the 1950s, I think. It got quite a lot of acclaim. It wasn't very well read, but it got acclaim from uh, Harold, Harold Bloom and... Some other poets whose name escaped me, but who are quite if you if if I remembered their names and told you, I think you'd you'd know of them. Sure. Yeah. Um and then he did not publish anything until he died in two thousand and I wanna say eight, but I'm probably wrong. But he continued to write poems until then. Um quite good poems, although I think I'm mostly in agreement in agreement with Bloom that nothing really outstrips the qualities of the poems in his first and only published book but okay. he was he was then once he died his wife and some other sort of friends in academia that he taught in a taught in an american university in a college somewhere um decided they should publish all these poems and said he's one of the greatest american poets of the 20th century which i don't think he has enough brilliant work to be considered the great one of the greatest american poets of the 20th century i think at times he does come quite close to being a very good one like a a great one at times in a few poems he does but he is very little known i actually read him back in 2020 i stumbled upon the book randomly his collective poems uh corrupted into song which i thought was a good enough title to let me but to let me read it yeah. and liked it enough and then forgot about it for two years and rediscovered him very recently um i was actually sh- surprised because i tweeted some of his lines on the slee ricketts account some of these sort of lines that i thought were pretty stunning and shane great shane came back and said i love alvin Feynman. i was so excited but um <laughs> yeah i think me and shane are the only people i know who've heard of him he is pretty obscure I think Shane Badly, knows of every poet and knows every living poet personally as well. That makes sense. I, that sounds totally believable. Yeah, considering uh, it's Shane. Yeah, and I feel like the more the more certain you are that you've pulled a, a diamond from the rough, the more likely it is that Shane has like a deep and rich familiarity with that with that poet. <laughs> Uh, well, do you want to start with that one then? Because that was the one I was. Well, uh, yeah, I just like why don't yeah why don't we just sure. listen to it and then and then you can school me on it. Shall I read it? Yeah, please. Let me give me like a few minutes of interminable clicking while I get to it. Sure. Okay, so this is preambles I or one vagrant back my scrutinies the candid defamation defamation as with use a coat or trousers of one now dead, or as habit smacks of certitude, even cosmographies, the broad orchards, the uncountable trees, or a river seen along the green monotonies of its banks, and the talk of memorable ideals ending in in irrelevance. I would cite wind-twisted spaces absence listing to a broken wall and the cornered noons our lives played in such things as thwart beginnings limit 
or juxtapose that longest vision, a bright bird winged to its idea, to the hand stripped by a damaged resolution. Daily of its powers, arcade brooted through crumbling masteries, to hang like swollen apples in the river, witnesses stilled to their clotted truth. All discursion fated and inept, so the superior reality of photographs, the soul's tragic abhorrence of detail. All right. It's a beautiful poem, sonically, I think. Oh, I mean, um, it, it yeah. is, whatever else you might say about it, I think it's, it's very clear that he is extremely skilled and takes great care with his language. And there's like, oh, sure. to, to look at like the other extreme, I read once in, in one of his many and ill-advised interviews, Jonathan Franzen, wh whom I quite like as a, as a novelist and, and always just says uh, pig-headed things in interviews, <laughs> um, <laughs> said that he thought the, he defined like l literary writing uh, in contrast to like commercial writing or, or like pulp writing. He defined literary writing as writing in from which the, author had taken pains to to remove cliches which is like such a strangely reduced idea of what writing is but but like if you consider for a moment the like cliche laden writing that is that sort of is sort of flat and dull on the ears and and fails to make impressions often because it because it's so familiar that one almost doesn't hear it um, if you think about that as being one extreme end, I think whatever else Feynman is doing, he is on the other end of the spectrum. Like there's, there's no language here that feels dull or dry or, well, dry is maybe a different question. Like none of it feels dull. None of it feels flat. None of it feels automatic. Uh, it oh, is so all, I think it, it is all quite you know, I, alive. Yeah. I think alive is a perfect word for it. I think it, I'd, I'd, I wouldn't even say it's dry i think you could read it in a dry way but i think you could also read it as like an incredibly powerful and maybe even terrified attempt to communicate i mean one one look a vague look at this might make someone assume that this is language poetry and it had no sort of interest in saying anything but i don't think that's true at all i think this poem is desperately trying to communicate it's just that it's trying to communicate something so complex that it becomes barely paraphrasable if at all paraphrasable I mean, I I read it mostly as a sort of um, a speech on decay. Uh, there seems much much of it seems to be interest in sort of a dis a disintegrating idea of beginnings. I mean, the um, the strange word I don't even know if I pronounced it right. Archae, I looked up meant mm -hmm. something along the lines of the plural of um, uh, a ancient Greek philosophical idea of first principles. And it seems to me that he starts off a lot of times with first principles. Uh, it's got it, that arc, or arc, whatever the, mm -hmm. that's got to be the same root as archetype, right? You'd think. I seems, mean, yeah. Seems like it yeah. should be. Mm. I mean, archetype is also about first principles. So that, yeah, that seems both right. logical. Or like this would be like pr almost before, like an archetype is a first principle expressed in a, in like a, a conventional way. Uh -huh. So maybe this is yeah. like before it's even been formulated. Yeah, maybe it's the abstracted first ideas, mm -hmm. right? But I mean, what I love about this is how even within the language, things seem to be coming apart. Let me get to a bit that I want to talk about. Um, give me a second. It, it occurred to me only during one of our recent conversations that as amazing as the the tool you're using is, you're only able to, it can only render one line of text at a time, right? Yeah, that's very true. Which means like, whereas I, I have the, the liberty of like passing my eyes over a bunch of pages I've printed out, you're literally going through the whole thing just one line at a time. Yeah. yeah which you, is see gotta, thing, it, you see thing in depth and dimension, right? I see things sort of one line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean I, if... That's it's also got to mean though that like like as the you know like the 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 Greeks worried a lot about writing uh diminishing our working memory um which like mm -hmm. surely it did 
like of course it limited I like I think writing has enough advantages that I'm glad we adopted it as a species but like it it probably did reduce our working memory uh so but it makes me it makes me imagine that yours is probably actually less diminished because you don't maybe. have that it's not ready to hand and well it's maybe ready to hand in a slightly different way but it's not it's not as easily s skimmed and it's sort of like I, I thought about like I have a very, very bad sense of direction, like a cripplingly bad sense of direction. And I've thought about it sometimes as being like even somewhere I've gone a lot of times it to me, it's like finding a place again is like finding the same line in a giant book in it's printed in a language I don't speak. Mm -hmm. Like I can do it and eventually I'll kind of memorize roughly where to go. But uh, you don't I don't I don't have the the fluency to to glance over the whole thing and get my bearings right um, okay. yeah and so I, I i it just makes me imagine that you have to you have to maintain more of the body of the thing in your mind than probably a sighted person would have to yes i yeah i think that's accurate the sorry you were, what I'm, was the section you were going to talk about well i was just gonna say the problem is i I only have one like understanding of memory, and that's my own memory. So it's hard right. to sort of <laughs> say with certainty whether I have a bad memory than other people. But I think in that sense, I probably do. So the thing I was going to talk about was the end of uh, the end of one sentence, the beginning of the next. The lines as thwart beginnings limit new sentence, or at least a capital letter, or juxtapose that longest vision, a bright bird winged to its idea, to the hand stripped by a damaged resolution. And I mean, there's a brilliant phrase there, a bright bird winged to its ideas. How he's using wing there, I think, is incredible on a conceptual and uh, literally word choice level. But what I really like about this is how it seems to me the sort of longer, um, the longer, more latinate syllable of beginning and resolution and all these sort of more complex ideas are continuously being interspersed with, or at least being put onto pressure next to these much shorter, blunter phrases of, yeah. and blunter, almost Anglo-Saxon words of stripped and, wing and winged. And that to me seems to be almost analogous of the core struggle within the poem, which is between sort of first principles and decay. And, and also the poem as well, sort of the most memorable first lines in most poetry I've read. They go back to your scrutiny. scrutinies. I mean, it's really striking. I mm. I feel it's immediately explosive. I feel immediately lost. When I read it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're immediate res, right? Literally, yeah. sonically, and phrasally, and grammatically. Yeah, I mean, it it so there the the teacher I had in college who for a million different classes and who ran the magazine I I helped with at the time, uh, w like he was a he actually was a great fan of a certain kind of contemporary australian poetry because he'd spent a lot of time there but he you know his guiding if he had like one rule like the satanists say do and now with the um and it harm none do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law for uh -huh. for him like the one rule was uh let not thy writing be expected like like don't write anything that could be anticipated okay. um and and whatever else is happening here i think that's a that, like that certainly that certainly applies here like there's very little that i could anticipate from one line to the next there i had no way of saying like i bet there's going to be this turn later in the poem or I, like very often you know you read a poem and you have a sense that like oh i kind of see what's like what direction we're going or what kind of turn i might see later or what kinds of even like what other images I might <laughs> might see later in the poem, and and that can be a weakness certainly. Like that can make for that can be dull the way like a, a predictable joke is dull sometimes. But here, I mean, it is nothing is predictable. I can ex I ex you know I I am able to anticipate nothing. I mean, you are you are you are unable to anticipate nothing from. Not even sentence to sentence, but line to line and word right. to word. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and and so I am like the the distinction that um, I want to say it was Billy Collins talking about Stephen Dunn's poems. You know, a a, a dubious source certainly, but what he <laughs> said that that I at least took to heart and I find to be 
a goal in my own writing is he said you 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 never know where you're going but you always know where you are and here i i sort of never know where i'm going but i i also never know where i am exactly you do feel lost completely well i mean what does seem true it's sort of like the um i feel actually it reminds me a little bit of the the cartesian uh what's the i can't remember the name for the process but the but where he he starts with or he concludes with cogito ergo sum but he starts by saying like let me doubt everything um in the ground is that the the i can't remember the name of the little pamphlet it's in but he starts saying, let me doubt everything and what he kind of concludes is there's one thing that i can't doubt like even if the whole universe consists of like the the machinations of an evil genius who has contrived to make me believe that i have a body and make me believe that there is a world and make me believe all these things even even still the one thing i can't doubt is that there is a thing that is thinking this like that I am thinking this means there must be something like I can't doubt that I am thinking the thing I am thinking, even right. if I'm, yeah. even if I'm wrong about it. And, and where I, where I'm totally in agreement with you is that throughout this, I do get the, I, it doesn't sound like a voice speaking. I've said before that I, I, I tend to need to hear a voice speaking in order to feel like I can follow a poem. But, but what is very clear is there is a mind at work and, and, and whatever he is getting at, it does. He does seem to be trying to get at something, and there does seem to be a mind in operation throughout, and a very uh, powerful and discriminating mind. If also a mind that maybe either has trouble expressing itself, or or uh, or isn't interested in expressing itself, or exactly, or or what it's trying to express is sort of beyond expression. Yeah, I mean, I'd go for the first couple yeah. of the first maybe or it's having trouble expressing something but i don't think that's any problem of itself or at least i think that's i think what the what the trouble is is the problem with language because language is in some ways such a clum, clumsy medium but the thing it's trying to express is going to come across in an unorthodox way and a troublesome way when applied to language that's how i read the struggle yeah. of preambles and with most of fame uh, fine man's poetry to be honest i i mean I, did you did, did you sorry. detect sort of because i this poem seems to me very strongly iambic i mean there's a big iambic current there's like a, there's a de- there's a lot of variations but it's also pretty heavily iambic right did you do you agree with uh, that the candid deformations as with use that's pentameter i think um i mean the first line is almost iambic depending on how apart from I mean, it's, no. it, yeah, it's, it's headless. Vagrant back though. my scrutinies. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Da, 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 da. yeah, 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 sure. It's a headless yeah. line of... Yeah, or you could say maybe trochaic. But yeah, I think in context it's headless iambic. I mean, I don't know. Like, grand theories of what iambic pentameter means or where it originates always sort of bore me. But I also tend to think that, like, there is enough of an iambic rhythm to educated english that regularly uh, or semi-regularly alternates latinate with germanic roots <laughs> like if you construct meaningful sentences and you do the the you know the the one basic thing you're supposed to do in order to create sort of a pleasing fluent intelligent texture to the english language which is which is to alternate ger- germanic germanic and latinate roots then i think you're going to end up with a lot of lines that are that are going to have an iambic ghost to them. A photograph of the soul's tragic abhorrence of detail. But I... Tragic abhorrence of detail is nice. Like that is a, that does have a nice trochaic, the, the first position trochae. And then, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I think, yes, there's plenty of iambic, there's a plenty of iambic rhythm throughout. I don't know that I conclude anything from that though. Well, what I concluded was, and with help in that, uh, Bloom and other professors kept talking about his connection with Hart Crane. But what I concluded with that was that I could hear a lot of Hart Crane's iambics in the back of this. I mean, Hart Crane took his sort of iamb- his sort of heavy, rhythmic, sonorous iambics from Christopher Marlowe. But I can hear sort of the Crane iambics in the back of this. What, because, what distinguishes can, I, them as Crane-like? It's a good... I mean, the sonorousness of it is... It's very hard to put into words. I, I almost feel it instinctually. I mean, the first line, 
I think is pure is purely crane like in its abruptness, in its talk of vagrants, which I think is very crane like. The candid, I mean, I a coat or trousers of one now dead. I think that comes pretty close to being an allusion to, if not a taking from, uh, Chaplin esque by Crane. But I'm edging around the question because that's not really to do with iambics. What yeah. do I? There's. I think it's how he stacks very loud, either loud consonantly or very long in terms of vowels, very long vowels and very hard consonants on each other in yeah. heavily, iambic lines with heavy variations, but I think it's very crane-like. And also yeah. that I, this seems particularly sonorous to me, this poem, almost as sonorous as cranes. But I don't, I don't, I just, I don't think it's straight crane imitation. I think this is, I mean, it weaves around crane. I can also hear bits of sort of Wallace Stevens in it, sort of um, thinking about in its yeah, sort of meditation. Yeah, yeah, meditation. Bru- that you know what? That's what I was thinking of. Brooded through crumbling masteries. Really, I was thinking like, mm. where have I? And that, and it crane is what that sounds like to me. Oh no, sorry, I said crane. I meant exactly what you just said, which is Stevens. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, I can hear crane also in that. Yeah. I think Crane and Stevens still converge in there. Yeah, I, I mean, but, and I, I've read more Stevens than I've read Crane, but no, I mean, I, all of that seems true, and and I, I totally believe the speaker slash poet working very hard to to approach the articulation of an extremely difficult sensation or or experience or idea. Uh, I, I just don't know. I think like where where I where this where I get lost is why should I read this? Ooh, that is a question. As in, why should you bother with the complexity of it, or as in, why should you care about the human subject of it? Mm. All right. So that you liked it told me there's something to find here. Um, okay. Because, I, because, like, okay. and, and not just because I, I like you, but like, you know, when an intelligent person, or, or like when any person seems truly, honestly, to take pleasure in a piece of writing, I tend to believe there's something there to find. And like in many cases, it's something obvious that isn't all that interesting to me, or or it's something obvious that is interesting. Um, and in some cases, if it's somebody, you know, if if I think like, wow, that person really did like that thing, I just don't get it. Then it makes me interested. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't know, I can't, I, I don't know what Feynman would want somebody to get from this. And I don't even mean like what meaning or what lesson, but like what, why publish it? I get, you know, I, I don't, I guess I tend to think of, I tend to think of reading as, 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 you know, being a good reader means being a good guest. Um, and at the same time, being a good writer means being a good host. And I and I err on the side of whatever thing I'm doing in that moment. So I try to say like, oh, I need to be a better guest when I'm reading, and when I think I need to be a better host when I'm writing. But this is a kind. This is a poem where I think like this is a smart person. This is a skillful person. This is a person who's very uh, deft with language. This is a person who's doing work that clearly has been touched by the work of great writers, and it's and it's of interest. To, to like serious readers and writers that I respect, but I, I, it doesn't seem to me that he's necessarily even being a bad host. It just seems like I'm trying to be a guest in his house and he's not hosting me. <laughs> I'm like showing up in his living room. Is sort of how it feels reading this. I don't think I fully understand this. As, so I want to talk about this more with you because I don't think I fully yeah, 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 totally. comprehend it. In like I don't fully comprehend the thought. Why has he published this? So let me try and get the bottom of this. So you think you're making an effort, but there's nothing in the poem that makes an effort to contact you back. Well, Is this this seems to me basically, yeah. I think like reading, like literature, is a relationship, you know. And I think I I always want to when I am reading or when I'm teaching, I try, readers I trend at tightest tend to say like you need to take as much of the responsibility on yourself as a reader as you can and you need to go the extra mile to you know when you're a guest in someone's house you have to make adjustments you have to make yourself 
you know, you, you know, do in Rome as the Romans do to some extent and adjust yourself in order to make yourself suitable to that home and, uh, and sensitive to the, the rhythms and the, the customs of that home. But of course, also when you are a host, you are sort of turning your house inside out to some extent, and you're making it, you're making it open and accessible and approachable to somebody who doesn't live there. And here I, I don't mind. I don't mind adjusting. I don't mind taking off my shoes when I come in. I don't mind, you know, not smoking. I don't mind, you know, uh, not using a certain kind of language or, or sitting on the floor or whatever the thing that we do in that house is. I'm okay. I'm, I don't mind going along with it and trying to like follow along and understand. But here, I don't feel like I'm coming into a house with customs that are very different from mine and I'm having to make a lot of adjustments like, oh, wow, this is really different than I'm used to. Here, I just feel like I've, I've showed up in somebody's house and he's not even expecting me. And he's not, uh, and he's not even making, like, it doesn't feel like, it's, it feels like a one-sided relationship. Like, I, mm -hmm. I don't, there are writers who, um, what's his name? Fuck. Theater of Cruelty. Who is that guy? The Theaternet's double. Our toad, our toad. Oh, uh, yeah. Antonin. Yeah, like his, right. his his approach to theater was to to startle and provoke and almost be hostile to the audience. Uh -huh. uh, and and he thought he th thought there was virtue in this, and you could get things out of this. And I think there's some. I, I get that. I get some degree of that. I was even thinking like like. Shashi Bhatt, who's like one of the kindest, most mild-mannered people you've ever met, even she, in talking about her writing, would say that, oh, I really want to kick the reader right in the stomach here. You know, like, if she just think, yeah. you know, like, it's hard not to think in, in somewhat violent terms about the way, you know, the moments when you want to surprise a reader or you want to yank the rug out from under a reader, this kind of thing. Uh, so some of that I get, but I think there's also, there is a, if it's going to be a piece of writing, that is meant to be that's meant to be some communication between people and not just an, a private exercise then there needs to be some reaching out and here this feels to me like the private exercises of a very smart and skillful writer who's working something out I but i feel so, it doesn't feel like it's, it's even intended for somebody else to read so so we were you were so no I'm going to say accusing, but I don't mean that. Please, no, 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 that's fine. Go right, ahead. But you're, you're kind of accusing of her of hermeticism, right? In that he's using sort of a very personal style that doesn't know, that only he will understand. That he's only accommodating himself and his own understanding of his thought, and he isn't converting yeah, I, that thought into something that other people can Yeah, I, um, I think, I think, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's not exactly how I would put it, but I think that's fair. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't agree with that, or at least okay. I don't, I don't, I don't find that in a personal visceral experience. I mean, I find there are phrases here, and the entire share of the poem communicates to me very vigorously. Although I don't know if I could put that communication into language other than the language the poem has already used. Right. Sure. And there are phrases here that, I mean, this is one of the few poems that really does do something to me that I think Emily Dick that seems comparable to what Emily Dickinson said when she said that she wants a poem to take the top right off her head. Yeah. And that, I mean, I did, this poem did make me come at poetry from a different angle, from a sort of an, an angle that wasn't sort of the paraphrasing or the looking to sort of meaning and then looking how style ornament, ornaments meaning. It made me come to the poem in a different way. And I found that ultimately exciting. I, I really liked how this poem rewarded my perception and my ability and my style of reading. And I am using very vague terms here because I, because the poem, I think, is trying to do something with language so complex and so hard that I, that I can't find a very specific set of um, idioms to talk about it in. But yeah, I think on that level, we're very separated. But I can understand and I can even see how you'd find the poem utterly hermetic in its sort of approach to thought. Because like I, I can't fully articulate what the poem is sure. saying. So in that sense there is a certain level of hermeticism for me. Sure, sure, yeah. Would you would you uh, read it for us one more time? Sure. Preambles one. 
Vagrant back my scrutinies, the candid defamish, defamation as with use, a coat or trousers of one now dead, or as habit smacks of certitude, even cosmographies, broad orchards, the uncountable trees, or a river seen along the green monotonies of its banks, and the talk of memorable ideals ending in irrelevance. I would cite wind-twisted spaces, absences listing to a broken wall, and the cornered noons our lives played in, such things as thwart beginnings, limit, or juxtapose that longest vision, a bright bird winged to its ideas, to the hand stripped by a damaged resolution, daily of its powers. Arcai bruised through crumbling masteries to hang like swollen apples in the river. Witnesses stilled to their clotted truth, truths, all discursion, fated and inept. So did the superior reality of photographs, the soul's tragic abhorrence of detail. Thank you. And that's Alvin Feynman. Uh, whom I had not heard of, but I'm glad to I'm glad to know of him, Alvin Feynman from Preambles. Uh, this is Preambles one, and, and Preambles is also the name of his his one book published during his lifetime. Yeah, Preambles, Alvin Feynman. I, I get. I'm guessing you're not going to after this talk. You're not going to go off and read the other two or three sections of Preambles that I didn't <laughs> include. Uh, I. I mean, I don't think I am gonna go. I, I've got a long list of things I'm reading, so he's not gonna he's not gonna leap up my oh, list. Sure. But uh, but I am interested, and I he will definitely be on my radar in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, this may not be a bad time to uh, to bring up this email I got from Coleman, and then Ooh. and then uh, Alice's response to it, which I thought they thought both were. We're quite smart. Um, let me get uh-huh. yeah. oh, Coleman Glenn. Coleman Glenn, yeah. Uh, Coleman and do Glenn. do let me know also just if if, if ever uh, it is it's easier for me to read something. I'm you know. Oh uh, sure. I, I mean, I'm less worried about reading. I'm always worried that I read things terribly. <laughs> I mean, I when I remember when you had the um, I can't remember his name, the English podcaster who who did a psychology podcast and then did a poetry podcast on yeah the yeah. Mark McGinnis, yeah. <laughs> and he read um, a Yeats poem at the end. <laughs> he read it in such a weird and like, I'm, I don't want to say pretentious, but in like such a in-depth and loving way. And like, I rem- I just remember him going, a mouthful of air. <laughs> I don't want to be mean, but I kind of cracked up when I heard him do that. But like, I don't even think he was reading it badly. He was reading it very yeah. sort of dramatically. Yeah, yeah. I, I just... I, I always want to strike it. Like I want to read a poem and bring out its tonic qualities, but I also don't want to over dramatize it. You know. Right. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, and I, I think that was partly the the origin or one of the origins of what of poetry voice, as I, I talked about in the first mm-hmm. episode. And, and you know, and I do think poetry voice is changing. Like I think I think there will still be a default poetry voice. I just think it it will develop into a slightly different one than it has been. But like the poetry voice that like totally dominated in my you know college and grad school days i think a part of where that came from was a a a desire not to oversell the poem like a Mm -hmm. desire not to to infuse too much emotion or too much drama into it and so part of what part of part of part of the quality of poetry voice is is sort of throwing away the words. Uh, often it ends up meaning throwing away the words in a way that makes it actually hard to reconstruct the sentence in your mind. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I think I, I'm totally with you there. And I think like it's it comes up to in in like discussions of spoken word because, you know, as we know, spoken word poems very often tend to be pretty flat on the page, but that's partly because they are often very dynamic in their delivery. Um, and if you're writing a poem that has to contain all of that itself, then then in, an excessively dynamic or dramatic delivery is actually going to sort of overcook it. Uh, mm, so cool. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm very, very with you there. All right, so this was a, a note I got from Coleman in which he's responding to a conversation I had with Alice. I think it was, 
I think it was one in which I said I didn't really, I couldn't imagine people genuinely liking Ocean Vuong's poems and Alice disagreed. And she said, oh no, but I, I mean, I, I respond to them immediately and I, I know people who do. So I think that was part of what prompted him to write, but he, he took up, I think a certain portion of that, that topic and he, he ran with it. Um, so he says, and all of, all of Coleman's, uh, emails are, are like very conversational, but also like very, uh, very fully like thought out and well-structured little, little mini sermons. So I know he's, he, he has to be very good at his, at his pastoring job. Uh, so he says, uh, your conversation with Alice a few weeks ago about whether people actually like the stuff they claim to like got me thinking about Donnie Darko. Do you know, by the way, Donnie Darko? Name's familiar, but I can't. No, not really. Yeah, Who it's is a, a movie that came out uh, okay. 20 years ago, I think. About 20 years ago. It was the first big, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's first uh, big movie. Oh, okay. Um, when that movie came out, my friends loved it. I ended up seeing it several times with different groups of people, all of whom thought it was deep and powerful. I thought it was an incoherent mess. I eventually rented the DVD myself to watch it with director's commentary to find out what the heck was going on. It turns out, as became clear in the release of the 2004 director's cut, that there was a totally opaque, bonkers plot about the random things Donnie needed to do to create a time machine and undo some kind of split in the space-time continuum. That was the story writer-director Richard Kelly wanted to tell. He utterly failed at it. No one picked up on it. Elated to have discovered that I wasn't crazy, that the Emperor had no clothes, I went to one of my friends who loved Donnie Darko and thought it was brilliant and clearly explained to her that the movie she thought she loved was not the movie she'd actually seen. Shockingly, she did not acknowledge the irrationality of her affection and thank me for setting her straight. Here, a little, little uh, uh, irony here. You, uh, she got annoyed at me for being a jerk and told me she still loved the movie and she still thought her own interpretation of it was just as valid as the director's. I think about that when I think about people who love poetry that to me seems incoherent and opaque. I don't mind ambiguity, but when I read or watch something, I care about the uh, about what it is about the what it is trying to convey. I'm interested in the thing itself and the way it communicates, not just in my own reaction to it. Although postmodern philosophy might tell me I'm delusional, but it tells me that there are lots of other people like my Donnie Darko loving friend who aren't much interested in coherence in art because they care about more about whatever subjective reaction the work of art might spark in themselves, regardless of whether that was the artist's intent or whether it's a widely shared reaction. Did my friend really love Donnie Darko? Absolutely. Was part of that because loving it made her feel smart? Probably. But that wasn't all of it or even the main thing. She liked the way it set her off down a rabbit hole of her own thoughts and feelings related to the images and events in the movie. Um, bringing it back to your conversation with Alice, I know that, that I know there are some people who are just smarter than me who get what a creator is going for and have genuine insights in, into the value of it. The people who somehow understood Richard Kelly's off the wall time machine story and for some reason find it valuable. But there are also people who just don't particularly care about whether the reaction they have to a work of art is re related to anything inherent in the work itself. I don't think they're faking the, their affection for a work most of the time. It's just that their affection need not be tied to the quality of the work at all. There's nothing wrong with that, but it does make it feel, but it doesn't make it difficult to have any kind of constructive conversation about the merits or lack thereof in any particular work. Um, I, I mean, part of my response to this email, I did write him a little note, but like, I saw Donnie Darko 20 years ago when I was in college, just fresh out of high school, and uh, loved it. I'm also like a like a depressed white male Catholic millennial American, so I'm like totally the target audience. Uh, but I I just thought it was a great depiction of what it's like to be like a depressed kid in high school. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it it to me it's a basically it is a lyric as a movie like what it does is it evokes a feeling he's he's very good at setting a mood he's very good at picking a soundtrack he's very good at these big uh sort of dazzling visual compositions uh there is a story watching it at the time I remember thinking like i don't really get all of this but i get that it feels important to the main character and and it and it it the the mood of it and the momentum of it all ring true um, but I, I, I think that Coleman's maybe getting it. I, I think he may be bringing in a few different factors that aren't all the same thing. Like one is he talks about liking something because it makes you feel smart, which is maybe different from pretending to like something in order to seem smart. Right. 
Yeah, there's a big difference. There's a, there's a you I know mean, there's like, actual like in one. Right. Yeah. One is like you 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 really do like it, and and like partly it's it makes you feel smart, and partly that's like you. I think my experience of liking things because they made me feel smart tend not to involve confusion. Like those tend to be the cases where I actually figured something out, and the figuring out is what made me feel smart more rather than the like the being in on it made me feel smart. Uh, but that like that is a genuine pleasure. I think he's he's right to identify that, um, and I think he's also right to identify that there are plenty of works of art we can respond to as as impressionistic or as lyric or as you know mood studies. Uh, I mean that's music, right? We don't very seldom do we analyze the denotative value of music, but we it moves us. We respond to it. Yeah. So all of that seems totally true to me um i guess like the two categories i would divide here in terms of my own response are the category of work that i i can't imagine anybody really enjoying and i have not heard any convincing account of enjoyment about and then the category of stuff i don't enjoy but I believe that if I were smarter in a particular way, then I would enjoy it, or I, I could enjoy it, because other people seem to enjoy it, who who have some intellectual edge in some dimension that I don't have. Um, I mean, what do you What it, do you make of all this mess? Well, this made me think of like the categories of things that I don't enjoy and that I'd want to make a critical comment about and say why I don't enjoy it and why I don't think that thing is very good and the category of things that I don't enjoy but also think are quite good. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing with like Ocean Vuong's poetry, you would you don't enjoy it and you don't think it is very good as well, right? You'd right. Want, you you could you could make a crit you could write essay, a critical statement about why you don't think it's very good if, if yeah. you wanted to. Um if you want to be shunned by the poetry world. But um <laughs> too late. <laughs> I don't know, Matthew. I'm sure they can. They can. They can extra shun you. But um, yeah, that's true. It's interesting. I mean, uh, the thing is, it it all comes down to like subjectivity and objectivity. And like, I have arguments with my friend who says all art is entirely subjective, and like, this really upsets me. I can't entirely reason what? out why it upsets me. But so, like, and sorry, so really, just say say again what it is that he says. So he says that all art is entirely subjective. Right. Okay. And this really, really annoys me because I, I don't want all art to be entirely subjective. And also, I just, I don't think that's true. I mean, my normal comment is that if all art is entirely subjective, why is there a common agreement that Shakespeare is one of the greatest writers ever? And then his reply will be something along the lines of, because we've, at some point it was decided that, and we basically roped ourselves into like cultural capital and now we just reproduced the teaching that Shakespeare is the greatest writer ever, whether he actually was or wasn't, and it doesn't apply to sort of a generally held objective truth. But like, I I think there are objective truths you can work out, or not. I don't want to say objective truth. That's too that's too grandiloquent. But so, so I, there is, I think, truths and integral parts of poetry that you can work out a critical baseline for. So one of my problems with Ocean Vuong is I think he makes a lot of statements that appear like very, you know, you know what deep means, like the colloquial meaning of deep, as in like something philosophically complex and interesting. And yeah, yeah. I important. mean, what this is what uh, Daniel Dennett was playing on when he he coined the term deepity. Yeah. So I think Vuong makes a lot of faux deep deep statements, and like he'll make a statement that. You, but someone, but on the surface, you go, ah, oh, sounds really deep. When you think about it, it's just either nonsensical or doesn't actually make, it isn't actually that deep at all. And it's yeah. just like too, and it's love. It is structured in questions, which adds a little bit deepness. It's like inviting the reader to think about it intently. And this is what really annoys me about Vuong, and also it really, really annoys me is that I don't think he has much music or stylistic or rhythmic control at all. I mean, I don't. I think so. It's very yeah. good on many levels. No, I, I think that I think I'm with you there, and I'm certainly with you in in resisting your friend's claim about art. Though I, I guess, like I maybe would frame it a little bit differently because it's subjective. 
like colloquially subjective means you know uh de gustibus non est disputandum right like mm-hmm. you can't like it's up for grabs like no no, no point arguing but yeah. i think if we want to be a, a little bit more technical then like yeah i think the response to art is always subjective but what that means is that you have to be a person to appreciate it like you can be the mars rover and detect light and heat and you know weight and various other physical properties you can't be the mars rover and detect poignancy right you have to be a human being in order to detect it but like sexual pleasure is also totally subjective like you have to be a, a person you have to have a sexual body in order to experience sexual pleasure a robot can't experience sexual pleasure but what's also true is that like blowjobs feel good like that's mm-hmm. not that's not like a, a an obscure esoteric idiosyncrasy that's like no things like just because you have to be in a human mind and body in order to experience certain things doesn't mean we can't make broad statements about like that experience yeah, and, and like, Ooh, I just I just came yeah, up with a title for this episode. We can call it "Blowjobs Feel Good" and "Shake This Great." It's a great title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, back to Colin. yeah. Um, and then, well, here I'll quickly read. Um, Alice, I think I thought had a, a, a nice response to this, and and being being Alice, it was it became both like like personal and then like more, um, uh, like also very. Uh, specific in its application. Right. Um, I mean, we're, we're just, I mean, this entire episode we're just stealing off Alice. So yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, this is true. Yeah, Alice, Alice theft. Uh, it's Alice theft all the way down. Um, uh, she just said, "Thank you for sharing this. I keep reading it over because while I agree with most of it, something irks me. I think Coleman gives himself away at the end when he switches coherence to quality. I wonder if they're the same thing to him." I just got home from the gallery. We took the mother-in-law in to see the Picasso exhibit exhibition. I didn't really want to go. I don't really care about Picasso, but of course you take the Tasmanian mother-in-law to the Picasso when she comes to Melbourne. By the time we got there, parked, found the lift, found the line, got moved to another line, bought tickets online because the line wasn't actually moving. We were all grumpy and definitely not in the mood. But one of the first paintings was the Sacre Coeur. Seeing it for the first time, I had that every hair standing up kind of feeling. It reminded me of things I hadn't thought about in years. I felt unable to move. And I was thinking about whether that experience comes from understanding the work, I didn't, or from the quality of the work, or from the fact that I know I'm standing in front of a Picasso and want to feel like I'm cultured, or from something else. But yes, a Picasso and a famously opaque movie about a giant freak rabbit are two different things. Uh, and then she she goes on to some other topics. Um, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but so I was, um, it's interesting. My part of my experience reading this note was that I, of course, then Googled the Picasso Sacre Coeur and, uh, I, you can see a version of it online. I could not see a version that looked like much of anything. And it, I took away a much stronger impression of the painting from hearing her account of her experience of the painting. And I, my guess is that it is one that it, it makes a big difference seeing it in person, but it reminded me also of some of your ekphrastic writing where you, you are more writing about other people's writing about the, or you're writing with that as your sort of source text, the right, the responses to the work rather than, uh, rather than a, an original experience of the work itself. Cause I, I am very, I was very moved by her account of being moved by that painting even though in like seeing a little dumb reproduction online, I couldn't really get much out of it. Like her account said it authentic, right? Oh yeah. I, no, I, I totally believed in it. And it, yeah. and she, I mean, even like in the way that a, a good lyric poem will do, she primed it with mundanity and with, and yeah. with, you know, a, a kind of a, a, a dull lack of expectation that's then sort of punctured by this sudden apparition. Oh yeah. It was like a really good, like anti-structure for a joke, you know. And, yeah. You know, in David Yezzy's essay, uh, poems are like jokes. I, you know, I totally agree with that. And the, yeah, that that's a good, good example of how you know, the build-up and punchline and anti-expectation. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I when I write Eucharistic, I normally base I base them on a description of the painting, mm-hmm. and the description is normally unemotional. It's probably from like Wikipedia or like right, a, similar, right, right. A, web, a similar website, and then base it on the emotional or imaginative reaction that which occurs on me upon hearing that description so if that description excites me and gives me imaginative images i then try and write a poem of 
bow to that 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 mm. is what happens to me in the process and yeah i'm interested i'm going back a little bit i am interested in the difference between coherence and quality because yeah. alice is talking about how she doesn't understand the picture and the painting and yet it still gives her an emotional power Right. And then I guess the implicit there is that's quality, but maybe not coherence because it, right. it didn't cohere for her. So in this definition, we're linking coherence with a literal intellectual understanding of a piece. Because I'm wondering if you can link, can you understand something, can you understand something coherently emotionally, but not in an intellectual way? Like yeah, if you yeah. stumble upon a painting and, and on an emotional level, see how it all works, somehow understand it completely and emotionally the effect and how the individual sections have brought the total effect and yet be un- intellectually unable to understand how you go here because I think you can I think that is possible right oh I think it's it's not only possible I think that's in most works of art of any variety that I that I really respond to I respond in that order I, I first mm. respond emotionally and then that's what makes me want to bother to dig in intellectually but would you say does it cohere emotionally does it does the emotional are we saying that the emotional reaction is an emotional understanding of coherence or simply an, an emotional understanding of how striking the image is well you might I, not I even it's... understand it you might not even understand it emotionally as coherent but you might find it emotionally striking right yeah well so i mean so something that that is notable I think about the that, that Feynman poem we just talked about is that I could see any number of individual lines from that poem being really moving in a different context part of so part of what makes a poem effective in in my experience is that it takes individually recognizable elements and then juxtaposes them or arranges them in a way that is surprising uh, or that is sort of mm-hmm. revelatory in that, or or that involves some sort of motion or progress. Uh, are we talking about emotional conceptual elements? Or are we talking about linguistic elements? Well, I'm just talking about any. So, all right. So, there's um, what I'm trying to. I think I have it by heart. Do you know the little Alexander Pope translation of the beginning of um, Horace's second apode? I do not think I do. It's called he. So. Um, Pope supposedly wrote it when he was 15, which is infuriating, <laughs> uh, but it's just called Ode on Solitude. And it's a very close rendering oh. of a section from uh, Horace's epode. I may, I may have said Homer by accident, but um, no, you did. yeah, uh, so it is, let me just pull it up. So I actually have it because it's a great little tiny poem. Yeah, um, no, I've heard of Ode on Solitude. I can't um, remember it, but I, heard, I just didn't know it was a translation, although that shouldn't be surprising. Uh, and it's yeah, and part of it is uh, the the line that gives it gives it away initially is it begins happy the man, and the line in Horace is beatus ille. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, ode on solitude, happy the man whose wish and care a few paternal acres bound, content to breathe his native air in his own ground, whose herds with milk, whose fields with bread, whose flocks supply him with attire, whose trees in summer yield him shade in winter fire blessed who can unconcernedly find hours days and years slide soft away in health of body peace of mind quiet by day sound sleep by night study and ease together mixed sweet recreation and innocence which most does please with meditation thus let me live unseen unknown thus unlamented let me die steal from the world and not a stone tell where I lie. Uh, just a just a, a wonderful poem, I think. But it's you know, and, and among the the various virtues of it, I I love the 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 three long lines followed by the the, the one short line. It's remi- you know rem- reminiscent of a um, uh, suffix. In so part of what happens in uh, in this structure is that he. He doesn't the so one of those line one of those stanzas the the third stanza the middle stanza bleeds it and jams on to the next one quiet by day sound sleep by night but the rest of them are are self-contained they close off uh-huh. with that epodic fourth line and like the set the second stanza is the one that that most 
that all you know, sort of most leaves a mark in my mind, whose herds with milk, whose fields with bread, whose flocks supply him with attire, whose trees in summer yield him shade. And all of those are very clear, straightforward, recognizable, plain spoken lines. And then the last line is in winter fire. And the phrase- oh, that, that line struck. Oh God, I mean, in winter fire is a great line, but like in winter fire, the compression of that line mm. makes no sense out of context, but in context, it's just dazzling. Ooh, yeah. And so yeah. I think I think the the Feynman poem to me felt like a whole poem con, con, like constructed only of in winter fire. Mm. And so it, okay. it like every line felt like, oh, this line could be really poignant in a context in which I was able to get hold of everything it's doing. But like every line was this sort of like wrenched, dynamic, like carefully built sort of masterpiece like it was like all symbols all finale you know like it didn't mm. it didn't have any build and it and so i was left feeling impressed but unmoved okay if that if that makes yeah, some, that some sense you know it makes sense i don't know I mean, yeah I, mean, I and i totally no, i told and i also totally believe having a different response to it but that's sort of that was that's the the i guess the the mechanical explanation of my response or I do kind of empathize in that I have the same feeling that all the lines are, yeah, I have the same feeling of all the lines being incredibly compressed, mm -hmm. glittering explosions of meaning. It's just that I like how they all, I think I can maybe not follow, but at least find a path that allows them all to work together. And I, mm. I can, I can, I like how they're working together. But yeah. no, I do, I do understand how, well, I know I, I empathize with that they are, compressed explosions of meaning and I can understand how they might just read like a jigsaw of mismatched lines that belong in better expanded context. Yeah. Right. Oh, and, and I also, I mean, I think there are, there's art that you have to have a certain perspective or a certain experience in order to appreciate. And like, there are things that I wouldn't have found moving at earlier times in my life and vice versa that like, and not because one, you know, like, you're always wiser as you get older, but just because you're, you're in a different place or you're, you have a different set of experiences. And like, I know like a friend um, who grew up in a, a, you know, in a very different set of circumstances uh, told me that he like ad admired Alice McDermott's novels, but didn't really get what, like they didn't just didn't care much about them. And okay. Alice McDermott's novels are most, I mean, I've not read all of them, but the several I've read are, Basically, like they are domestic dramas about very close knit, often depressed, often alcoholic Irish Catholic families. And I, and like because of my background, they just all are incredibly powerful and wrenching and moving to me <laughs> because, like, I come from, you know, that's where I come yeah. from. I get it, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think, like, there are not just, I don't think it's as simple as like, what's your, you know, cultural, what are your cultural bona fides? But like, for whatever reason, because of whatever set of variables, some of us have a certain key when it comes to art, where like, oh, I totally get this. And it, it you know, it lands for me. And, it, and, and in some cases, it doesn't. But like, I, this is just an example of a poem where it's, it's a little far for me on that spectrum of like, like so it's like the so the there's the so so dull and plain spoken that it, like you it's hard to care enough to get from one sentence to another and then there's the like so so like lively and dynamic and and tripping along on the toes that i i just don't even know what's going on um and this is I mean, this, yeah. this sort of slide this is like far along on that spectrum for me and maybe i just don't have enough of whatever other experience or whatever other or, you know, like perspective or orientation to allow it to like land for me yeah i yeah I, I i i can see that i mean that happens with me with language poetry yeah i i yeah, yeah. i sort of formulate enough theories that i yeah. don't sort of i blame language poets i don't blame myself for that that was my conversation with cameron about alvin Feynman's preambles one i am still at a loss when it comes to that poem but i am glad to have talked about it i'm glad to have encountered it especially in the company of 
Cameron. You can find Cameron as always on Eratosphere at WT Clark. And uh, please do reach out to me at sleeverickets at gmail.com if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, or objections to anything we talked about today. That's all for this week. I will have more for you soon. And if you are on the secret show feed, then look out for the second half of our AMA. Thank you all for listening. And with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. (laughs) 